Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What's the Crack? My name is Elle, and I'm here with Adam Bourne from La Trobe University in Melbourne. Adam, could you tell us a sentence or two about yourself? Sure. Um, so I'm Associate Professor of Public Health at the Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society at La Trobe University. And I specialise in, in research among lesbian, bisexual, gay and transgender populations. Okay, that's great. Thank you very much. Um, so today uh, we're here to talk about chemsex. Could you explain to me and the listeners what chemsex is? Sure. So chemsex is the use bluntly is the use of drugs in a sexual context it's when you take certain drugs usually stimulants but um, some other drugs as well to help facilitate or help to enhance sex with another person that's great thank you and um could you t- typically what drugs are used in chemsex so that changes a little drugs using chemsex change a little in different parts of the world in europe very much focused on three drugs, um, crystal methamphetamine, mm-hmm. um, a drug called mephedrone, which is a synthetic cathinone, um, and um, a drug called gamma-hydroxybutrate or gamma-butralactone, most commonly just used, described as GHB or G for short. Mm-hmm. And those are the three most common in Europe. Um, in Australia, it's a little bit different where I am now. Crystal methamphetamine is by far the most common. You don't see much mephedrome and there's only a very little bit of G. Um, and from what I understand in North America, um, there's um, more crystal methamphetamine, um, very little mephedrome, and again, um, a small but perhaps rising amount of GHB as well. Okay, great. Thank you. And um, why these drugs? Well, that's a good question. The, we know that gay and bisexual men have used drugs more commonly than the general population for quite some time now. Um, and that's true in every country of the world where we've collected data. So um, we've known that typically they tended to use stimulant drugs. So drugs like ecstasy or cocaine, much more commonly than their heterosexual male counterparts. And those used to be very much associated with clubbing kind of context, going out, dancing, triggering feelings of euphoria, etc. Um, and in uh, certainly in Europe in the early 2010s and about 2011, 2012, there was a big drop in the availability of cocaine. Mm-hmm. Um, and a decline in the quality of the drug. And so people switched over to this new drug called um, mephedrome. Now, mephedrome has a lot of the properties of uh, stimulant of, of, um, of uh, cocaine, which was popular before, but it also has a really important additional effect in that it can make you feel 
very sexually aroused. It can make you feel quite horny. Mm. And men started using that drug more and more commonly in a sexual setting rather than just in a dancing clubbing setting. And then they also then kind of joined that with the use of crystal methamphetamine, which can make you feel even more horny um, and with GHB as well. So there's a little bit of market economics that came into play about why it emerged quite when it did. Um, But the reason why people use it fundamentally is because why they use these drugs fundamentally is because they trigger quite intense feelings of sexual arousal. Yeah, that's really interesting. It reminds me as well, especially with the increase of methadone is because I was I was at university when it was really big. So I feel like I was almost in that that methadone wave of everyone in university just going, this is methadone, cocaine's not even there anymore. We can't have MDMA. It's all about methadone and it just being everywhere. Then all of a sudden it being banned and then it dropping off again. It was it was a really interesting time to be there. But, yeah, um, sure. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting that that's still um prevalent in this uh, in this context i was wondering um especially with crystal meth because like you said it's not really known as much in the uk um is it known or do, do you know if it's that common outside of this context in chemsex and um msm men who uh, men who have sex with men uh, communities i couldn't quote you on the precise statistics right. i'm afraid but i can tell you that um, it is um, very, very, very low outside of gay, bisexual and other men who have sex with men. Mm. And I should say that even among gay and bisexual men, the proportion of men engaging in chemsex um, is quite low. And the proportion using crystal methamphetamine is lower still. Right. So we might be talking about, you know, perhaps at most two or three percent of the gay male population who are using crystal methamphetamine on a reasonably regular basis. Mm. Um, it's a, it is a, it is not the most common drug in a chemsex environment in the UK. Now that is very, as I said, it's very country specific. And in Australia, the complete reverse is true. Mm-hmm. So the use of GHB will be very low, but the use of crystal methamphetamine is considerably higher. Um, it used to be higher still in the mid 2000s, um, but then dropped off again. And then we are starting to observe um, a small but significant rise um, since about 2011 here. But the numbers are still relatively small. That's always an important point to remember on this topic. A lot of the kind of sensationist media reporting around chemsex has given the impression that all gay men spend all of their time in drug fueled crystal meth sex binges. And that isn't really necessarily true um and in fact with this is a minority within the minority behavior and we do need to keep um be mindful of that that's uh, that's actually really interesting because that was my next question of the fact that the sensationalized media that i've seen literally when i was just briefly going through was just saying chemsex what is it and why is it you know taking over the gay communities etc etc and i didn't see it they were more prevalent on my Google search than say, what is chemsex and tell me about it. So I just, it's, it's good that it's, you know, it's mindful that it is a small minority. It is an endless frustration of mine about Mm. how badly this gets misreported. Um, And I I think, you know know what, it is a very sexy topic. It's drug use and it's gay men and it's sexual behavior and it's risky sexual behavior. It's very appealing to, uh, to news editors who are searching for us for a headline story um, and they've been very lax in the way that they've often reported how prevalent this is we did a big study in 20 
15 in the UK of about 14,000 gay men. And we found that at most about 6% of them were engaging in chemsex within the previous four weeks. And that's probably very much an upper estimate. And it's, you know, it could well be quite a bit lower. Um, you do see variations by subpopulation. That is important to remember. So although at a population level across all gay bisexual men, the number is quite low. Mm. If you look at it in particular parts of the country, it's much higher. So in London, um, it's more like 12 or 14 percent who had used one of those three drugs associated with chemsex within the previous four weeks. Mm. Um, and if you look among HIV positive men, then it's considerably higher. So we know that um, probably around one in five HIV positive men nationally and one in three HIV positive men living in London will have used one of those three drugs within the previous four weeks. So small amounts of people generally, but it is kind of clustered within particular subpopulations. And that's true of any kind of drug yeah. use, to be honest. Gay men aren't unusual in that regard. There's always pockets of where drug use is higher, um, depending on what kind of drug it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's always those uh pockets and you go further and further down with any drug it's like you know the majority of the population will not even touch for example cocaine and then you get further and further down that you know some will um take it recreationally and then every day and then a problematic use kind of thing um absolutely absolutely yeah. um so what uh, so this is a uh, kind of jump in they're still involved but what does the um <laughs> Uh, the mobile dating app Grinder have to do with chemsex? Well, I mean, it's not just Grinder. It's mm. it's kind of um, any any mobile phone application yeah. can serve a similar purpose. Um, we shouldn't be too cruel and single out just Grinder. <laughs> although I guess it's probably true that it's the most commonly utilised one for this purpose. Right. So um, Grinder, all these kind of mobile phone apps allow you to um, organise chemsex. Mm. Bluntly, they allow you to access the drugs that you would use for chemsex. They allow you to identify sexual partners to have chemsex with. They all, they're often used to organize chemsex parties where you'd have kind of a group sex environment with multiple men there at any one given time. And people do that by quite discreet means. Um, you can put, people will put on their profile name, they'll say, um, you know, a friend of Tina or looking for Tina or mm. which is a, a street name for crystal methamphetamine or they'll just put the letter T on their profile name or they'll put a little um, emoji of an ice crystal to indicate that they have ice or that they're looking for ice. Um, I was in Taiwan last week um, uh, speaking at a conference about chemsex and I learned there that people will often write on their profile um, they'll they will describe their profile name as Elsa, and Elsa is the ice the ice queen in film yeah. Frozen, um, and so they're, they're kind of these kind of subtle cues that if you're plugged into this environment, you'd understand what someone is trying to say um, by saying those words or putting those symbols on their profile. That's kind of the way in which Grinder is used to facilitate chemsex. What would be the risks of using these drugs within a sexual environment? There are, I mean, there are multiple 
potential harms um, associated. So, and they range range from the relatively minor, obviously, through to the much more um, extreme. The same with any the same with any drug. With um, methadone, one of the most commonly reported problematic side effects is bruxism. So it's it's teeth grinding. Um, and that may sound relatively silly, but in fact, if you're doing a large amount of methadone over a protracted period of time, you can cause quite extensive damage um, to your teeth as a consequence of um, of grinding, grinding them very regularly, um, which you can't often control when you're engaging in method when you're using methadone. So you have that at one end of the spectrum, right through to the other end with. Um, overdosing on crystal methamphetamine, um, which can lead to um, quite extreme um, panic attacks or paranoia attacks um, that usually require medically assisted come down and people can present in accident emergency settings in very um, extreme states of distress when they've used too much crystal meth. The most problematic of all, um, of course, though, is um, is overdose of GHB, of gamma-hydroxybutyrate. Um, and we have seen um, a, a very significant increase in the number of people dying from GHB-related overdoses. So GHB is a bit different from the other ones. You take it in very, it's a, it comes in the form of a liquid that you take in very small, very carefully timed doses. You usually add it um, between 0.3 and 0.5 microliters to um, to a, a soft drink. Um, and because the dose is so small, it's actually very easy to overdose and go over. Um, and that can trigger unconsciousness. It can trigger respiratory distress and it kind of suppresses your respiratory system. Um, and ultimately, you can form in, fall into a coma and die. Um, and between nine, 2014 and 2016 in the United Kingdom, um, there was a 119% rise in the number of GHB-related overdoses. And one person died of a GHB-related overdose every 11 days. Um, and that was, sorry, it was just in London during that time period. Wow. It's incredibly wow. problematic. Um, and it doesn't often receive the attention that it should. Most of the media and political attention about chemsex is focused on sexual risk behavior. Is taking these drugs making men do things that are more risky? Mm -hmm. um, and a particular concern about HIV. But by far the most acute concern um, should be about GHB-related overdose, because that's fundamentally what people are dying of right now. Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, I think it was about uh, my original question was the fact that because of the um, risks associated with crystal meth, are there um, more risks or I guess more issues surrounding those in Australia and uh, North America. However, then when you went on to talk about GHB, I felt that then maybe we'd be more concerned with the countries that use GHB predominantly more, which would be the UK. I don't know whether is there different rates of, um, I don't know, the risks associated within the different countries. Do, do we know the differences between the different countries? Or you know, that's yeah. no, that's a really good question. But unfortunately, we just don't know. Right. Um, we don't collect the right kind of data to be able to say in any certainty. Mm. Research always, I always say research plays catch up with reality. Yeah. Things happen in the real world. Someone usually on a front line in a drug service or a sexual health service notices something happening. They talk to a researcher perhaps who goes, oh, there's an interesting 
phenomenon that's unfolding and then we spend several years investigating it and that's really the position we've been in with chemsex for a while we have a lot of qualitative research that tells us about the nature of the behavior and we have a bit now of quantitative research that tells us how common the behavior is but we don't really have any data of any quality or very little data of any quality that tells us you know well kind of how what what are the what are the full range of harms that people are experiencing how common are these harms how do those vary by different populations how do those vary by country and um, that's really is the next step in the research agenda here okay great and you you mentioned that we've done some qualitative work i saw that you um you and your team had done work on social norms of chemsex um and that kind of yeah. touches to what we've done, uh, what we were speaking about, or the fact that it's not as popular. Well, it's not as common as people might think. Is that something that <laughs> has come out in the research that people think it's more normalised when in fact it's not? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really fascinating when you. Um, it was really fascinating doing some of these interviews with these guys and asking them who were so we interviewed men who disclosed the fact up front that they engaged in chemsex and had done quite recently and we asked them you know how common do you think chemsex is and they nearly always said oh everyone's doing it absolutely everyone i know is doing chemsex and someone said to me you can't go to an afternoon barbecue nowadays without someone offering you some methadrone um, and I thought I'm going to the wrong barbecues, clearly. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, it, it was re it was really telling. It was a really it, it was a really valuable insight into how people who are often find themselves locked in quite a dense network of friends who are engaging in um, in chemsex, um, and it becomes the case that all of their friends and all of their sexual partners are also engaging in chemsex. And so you start to imagine that, of course, that must mean everyone in the world is engaging in chemsex. And, and that really, really, really isn't the truth. Um, but when you're in that position yourself and you're very much attached to that community of people, um, it can be it can be hard to have kind of clear perspective. It can also be hard to break out of. Um, and if you are someone who decides that they're having problems with their drug use um, and they want to reduce their use or even stop it if that's what they want to do, then it can be really challenging when all of your social contacts, all of your social support are engaging in the behavior that you want to escape from. Um, and we, we found this on several occasions with men having to make quite extreme steps in saying, I just have to leave London. I have to get out of the city. I can't stay here anymore. I have to move back to, you know, whichever country I came from or whichever part of the kind of more rural part of the UK I came from in order to escape um, the kind of cycle of chemsex that I found myself in. Now, often, of course, that became a rebound thing because they would then leave the city with all of their friends and all of their social support to move somewhere that they hadn't lived for a long time in a setting that was unfamiliar. They'd find themselves quite distressed by that move and they'd move back into the city again only a few weeks or months later. So it's not necessarily the best solution. It, of course, it might be for some people, but it became a bit of a yo-yo back and forth for several other guys that we were interviewing. Yeah, that's really interesting. It reminds me, uh, again, of just other drugs with like, for example, if you are taking heroin and all uh, and your social circle all do take uh, are using heroin to get out of that 
uh, routine, it's almost breaking up with friends as well because you've got to find absolutely. new friends and new things to do. And yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, when we we just published, it came out just last week. Um, colleagues with colleagues here in Australia, a paper that looks at um, kind of social connectedness of HIV positive men who engage, who use crystal methamphetamine and engage in chemsex. And what's really fascinating to observe is that um, when you compare men, HIV positive men who are, in, who are using crystal meth compared to men who aren't using crystal meth, the guys who are using crystal meth usually have more HIV positive friends. They have a higher perceived level of social support. Um, they have greater connectedness to the gay community than those men who don't use crystal methamphetamine. And that's a really important finding because it tells us something about the nature of chemsex that is beyond just sexual satisfaction. It suggests that there is a there is a social dimension to chemsex as well as just being about trying to have an orgasm. And that really does reinforce some of the qualitative findings that we found in our study in London several years ago as well, where men were describing not only quite intense, intense sexual encounters and very adventurous sexual encounters, but also, you know, all of that downtime where you've had sex and you're all back in bed and you chat to the person next to you that you've just shared that experience with or you're sitting around in a chemsex party and you're chatting to guys and having often quite intense conversations with them because you're still high and you're sharing something about yourselves with them now obviously these are quite unusual social <laughs> settings don't get me wrong <laughs> um, but excuse me but um, and, I, and I, I'm not necessarily advocating taking crystal methamphetamine in order to have those kinds of <laughs> yeah. in the slightest. What I'm saying is that they remind us of why people do it. Mm. They remind us about what motivates people to engage in chemsex in the first place. And if we don't understand what motivates people to engage in chemsex, then it's really hard to work with them to reduce the harms associated with it and to identify when it's becoming problematic to help put in place the kind of support systems that they might need to help them manage their drug use better um, if they want to. That's the value of understanding these kinds of motivations. Yeah, that is, that's a really good point because I feel that as well, you lose some of that personal um the personal touch, especially when it's, you know, just, be, again, thinking about the media with the coverage of just saying, oh, these are drug-fueled sex parties, you kind of miss the, those reasons, the reason of connectedness and the reason of motivating of why yeah. people go. You completely miss that and just think that, oh, yes, you know, it's all about the drugs and the sex. It's just like, oh, is there more? <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I have... Uh, Oh yeah, speaking of, um, I think when you mentioned the HIV positive men, I saw... Um... Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. 
I think on one of your papers or maybe someone in your team's papers about the stigma surrounding the HIV positive versus HIV negative um, men. Is there difference? Have, is there differences that you found in chemsex that there's segregation or is there stigma surrounding those that are HIV positive and there isn't any, uh, you know, mingling within the chemsex parties? You know, that's a really it's a quite a complicated question right. because it's something that's changing. No, it's fine. It's just something, it's something that's changing very, very rapidly. Mm. Um, so uh, I, you might be familiar with PrEP already, but if mm. not, I'll just explain briefly for the listeners. So there's, um, so when you are someone who's HIV positive, you can take medication called antiretroviral therapy or ART. Mm. Um, you take this therapy and it suppresses the amount of virus in your body and it allows you to have, a perfectly functional immune system. We've known that for a long time, since about 1996 this medication came around. In about um, 2008, we realized that, that that treatment suppresses the amount of HIV in your system so far that it makes it impossible for you to transmit HIV to someone else. Mm. You're actually not infectious anymore when you use your medication effectively and you take it regularly. But what we learned in about 2012 2013 with some certainty was that you can also give a variation of that medication to someone who's HIV negative to prevent them becoming HIV positive in the in the first place um, and this is called PrEP it's called pre-exposure prophylaxis and it functions very much like a contraceptive pill is the best analogy mm -hmm. if a woman takes the pill regularly she can prevent herself from becoming pregnant the same is true with PrEP if you take it regularly you can prevent yourself from becoming HIV positive now that has really changed the nature of a lot of sexual interactions among gay and bisexual men it used to very much be the case that there would be um there was a degree of separation and segregation between the two um and you would have hiv positive men organizing positive chemsex parties right. um wow. where they would directly seek only to have sex with other positive guys because it meant that they could have sex free of the worry of having of transmitting hiv to someone else and the same may well have been true of negative or untested guys who who tried at least to identify partners who were HIV negative. Now that's always a bit difficult. It's much easier to prove you're HIV positive than it is to prove you're HIV negative because you may have been more recently exposed. But there was definitely an attempt by both camps to, um, in some instances, to uh, to kind of have a, a separate space. Um, they were, of course, with some exceptions. I think what's definitely these two kind of... Um, uh, um, technologies, so PrEP being the first one and the second one um, being the, you know, the idea that you're not infectious anymore if you're, if you're HIV positive and taking your medication effectively. Those mean that, you know, those kinds of concerns go out the window for a lot of people. Um, if you're certainly, if you're taking PrEP and you're having sex with someone who um, who is HIV positive but undetectable and not infectious, there's no chance you can transmit HIV. So those kinds of, there is, I think, a sense that those historical stigmas around sex between positive and negative guys are being broken down far more so than we were able to accomplish in the 30 years before these technologies came around. Sorry, that was a very long-winded answer. No, it was perfect. Okay, so I've... Um... Also seen that you've done work with um, harm reduction surrounding chemsex and uh, MSM. Uh, could you explain what harm reduction techniques you've actually focused on? 
Well, we we examined really the techniques that men themselves were using right. to manage um, the harms associated with chemsex. And so these aren't always necessarily perfect, but we were keen to understand what what men were seeking um, themselves. Um, and, and those, some of them are quite generic in the kind of things you'd apply to any kind of drug use. And some of them are a bit more specific because these are relatively new drugs. So things like having, a, you know, taking with a friend, taking with someone you trust, it's quite a common um, recommendation for people using drugs, particularly when they're new to drugs, that if you take too much, if you're feeling uncomfortable or distressed, you have someone around to help you um, in those circumstances. Um, there's been, there, there were quite, often men were quite specific about the harm reduction techniques they were using when it came to GHB. Mm -hmm. um, and because they, some of them also recognized that this was the drug of key concern. Um, and, that's um, so that uh, so often men would be using um, little um, pipettes, so um, or little droppers um, to to draw up the right quantity of GHB so that they weren't overdosing. So rather than just trying to measure it in the back of a of a milk bottle cap or something like that, which is often what people were doing before, they would try to be much more precise and scientific with their dosing. So it was about having access to the right kind of equipment to dose safely. You'd also talk about, um, you'd also hear men talk about <laughs> having a G mama. Yeah. So at a party, at a chemsex party, you might have one person who is tasked with the role of kind of overseeing um, the use of G among everyone else at the party. Yeah. So they things like they'd have a little spreadsheet up on the fridge door in the kitchen um, where they would have every person and every hour where they've taken G um, and it would track that to make sure that they don't take too much. Very, very simple harm reduction technique, mm -hmm. but actually very, very effective having that person who very carefully um, observes the time intervals between doses to make sure that people don't overdose. With um, when people are injecting, um, because you're in a because both mephedrome and crystal methamphetamine can be injected, and often people describe a much more intense um, feeling of sexual arousal and euphoria when they do. Um, that can be an issue when you're injecting in a group sex environment because. Um, there can then be lots of di different needles um, lying around at any one point in time. And so several of the clinics in central London have um, created these little, um, they call them slam packs mm -hmm. because injecting is typically referred to as slamming among the gay community. Um, and um, often they come with different colored needles so that people can keep track of which needle was theirs to avoid the risk of either HIV or hep C, hepatitis C transmission um, with those needles. So again, a relatively simple measure, just having different colored ones, um, but can be quite effective in terms of um, limiting the transmission of bloodborne viruses. Hmm. Yeah, great. Thank you. And I love the idea of a G-mama. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Um, okay, so since you have begun, uh, you know, I guess, working with Sigma Research or around chemsex, what has, what has been the biggest change surrounding chemsex, if there has been? I know we said there's a lot of catching up in research, so we don't, you know, maybe can't see uh, drastic changes as quick as research ideally wants to, but has there been... I guess from the, the, the time that you started researching to now, has there been a, a big shift or a big change? 
That is a really good question that no one's ever asked me before. Yeah. Um, has been a big change? You know, I, as is always the case with phenomenon like this, you you become more aware of the nuances of it, mm. of the kind of granular detail of what's going on. I've been really interested to observe, it sounds a bit silly perhaps, but I've been interested to observe the changes in ways in which people talk about chemsex in online social media environments. Mm. So it used to be that people would have on their profiles um, chemsex or P&P, &P, mm. which um, party and play it's another term that's quite often utilized particularly here in Australia and they'd have those like very blatant taglines on their profile and then um the social the app owners grinder scruff hornet and the rest they um they ban the use of those phrases if you use them so people change to putting high fun on their profile or high high fun on their profile and then when those names got banned they moved on to something else and then something else and it's been kind of interesting from an ethnographic point of view to observe those kinds of developments in the terminology and the ways in which it's represented and i think um i, I also think there's two reasons for that though one is technological because the apps ban the use of some of these terms mm -hmm. but also i think i think some of the media reporting of chemsex has very much stigmatized the behavior um and, and i think people who engage in chemsex um have been demonized for doing so um and i think that has been i think that's incredibly problematic i think when you stigmatize any kind of behavior by um by kind of hysterical media reporting around it then you make it harder for people to acknowledge that it's what they're doing and to seek help for it when they want to mm -hmm. it makes it much harder for someone to disclose to their doctor to their sexual health um uh professional to a drugs worker that they're using these drugs and they use them in these kinds of settings and if the health professional doesn't know those things then they can't ask you know, they can't put in place the right kind of services that meet their needs, that protect them from HIV, that protect them from other bloodborne viruses, that help to ensure they don't get an overdose. And I think that, I mean, that's probably in itself one of the other interesting developments um, is how, is how, just how stigmatized I think um, this behavior has become. And I, and I do put that at the door of some of the media reporting on the topic, to be honest. I think we've sought ever increasingly um hysterical ways in which to describe this phenomenon um and th that's a problem i think it, it you know well it's a double-edged sword right on the one hand it's brought attention to an issue <coughs> excuse me that we paid very little attention to before we've known for a long time as i said that gay and bisexual men use drugs more commonly than the general population and experienced more harm associated with that use and we did absolutely nothing about it like there was very little political interest in in uh, in doing anything about it or paying any attention to that topic and um, it was only when it moved into a sexual sphere and there was a concern about hiv transmission that was the only point at which people really started to pay attention um and you know what maybe that was helped or facilitated by some of the media reporting would we have the kind of investment in drug services for gay and bisexual man, men now if it weren't for those that hysterical mm. reporting maybe not maybe not I, I can't answer that question um but i i would be foolish not to acknowledge that maybe it served a different kind of purpose it's just as always with these things it's um it's very multifaceted yeah absolutely i think it, it does bring 
you know, me media attention does have the definite double-edged sword. I just it just made me think though, actually, especially when you were thinking uh, talking about services like sexual health services and drug services, it kind of made me think of um, the wider drug world and its um, close knit ties with mental health and when you go to a mental health service but you have a drug problem they push you to you know sometimes they'll push you to the drug services to sort that out first and then when you go to the drug services but then uh, say that you have a mental health problem then you're kind of stuck in the middle so is it a similar yeah. thing when you when the community would go forward and say i have you know maybe a problem with chemsex where, where do you go and do you sit in that mid the middle bit of do i go to a drug worker or a sex sexual health worker Absolutely. You've got it in one. Um, and this is a really big problem for this topic um, because it very much falls between the gaps in service provision. So drugs organisations um, have historically been set up to deal with opiate use and typically heroin use mm. among a very different section of the population. Typically, um, um, you know, people from lower socioeconomic status backgrounds. Um, uh, and haven't had as much exposure to stimulant use. Um, the drug organizations haven't had as much exposure to stimulant use, I means, and they may not be very familiar with working with gay and bisexual men. Now, we're talking about a very unique environment in which men are using these drugs. We're talking about a very sensitive sexual environment where they're having sex perhaps with lots of different partners at the same time or over a protracted period. Trying to just talk about that and disclose that to someone who is heterosexual, someone who has no experience of the world that you live in whatsoever can be very, very threatening. Um, and we have, you know, there are reports in the work that we published of men having quite negative reactions from drug services when they've gone there to talk about their chemsex uh, issues. Not I mean, that not that is not uniform by any means. And there are some great drug services out there. So I'm really not seeking to tar everyone with the same brush, but I think most would acknowledge that they don't have the same kind of experience working with these kinds of drugs and this kind of population. Now on the flip side, you have sexual health services, which have gone a really long way in the last 10 years in making themselves more friendly and approachable um, uh, and providing a more comfortable environment for gay and bisexual men to come to have HIV tests, to come for SDI testing and um, screening and testing and treatment. Um, and so they are um, more so comfortable environments for this population, but they don't necessarily have any training or any experience or any capacity to deal with drug use. Mm. This isn't what they're set up to do. They're not drug services. They don't get funded to deliver drug services. They might not understand all the intricacies of harm reduction methods for the different types of drugs, or indeed, as you kind of indicated, have the experience in the mental health training that may be required to help support people in relation to their drug use as well. Um, and that is a big problem. And, and in country after country, you see that chemsex falls between the gaps because neither one system feels that they either have the time or the resources or the experience to deal with. And they always, there's a kind of bit of a, it bounces back and forth between the two. And you see that not only at a country level, but also at a global level. So, you know, does it fit within the UN um, 
uh, the kind of U United Nations body that is specific to drug use, or does it sit with the UN body that is about um, HIV and AIDS? Mm. Um, which policy at a global level should be responsible for this issue? And the answer, of course, is both. Um, but that's <laughs> that's not very easy to facilitate because there's, um, well, there's always turf wars and people are always st stretched with the resources that they currently have and so aren't necessarily looking to take on more work and feel like someone else should take it on. And again, there's a paper that was published just last week in a special issue um, of a journal on chemsex that um, I've been co-editing with some colleagues that looks at that problem um, at a national level and at an international level about how chemsex falls between the gaps of policy and service provision. It seems like it is. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just like listening, going, oh, what, what does happen? Where, do I, where does it sit? <laughs> it seems like it's a, a, an issue that we need to absolutely look into. And I feel that that is a good place to stop. You know, like the, okay. the you know, where do no, you know what? I'm going to ask you one more question, one last question. In a nutshell, what got you interested in this topic? Oh my god! Is that, could that be done um, in a nutshell? <laughs> <laughs> Not in a nutshell. You know what? I'll tell you. I'll tell you the real story. Okay. Um. So I done some. I done some work on alcohol use among gay and bisexual men several years ago, and I was again frustrated that. Um, this was a problem that was affecting the gay community far more so than HIV was, but um, the only thing that we could ever seem to care about for gay and bisexual men is HIV. All the other health issues kind of fell by the wayside. Um, and I was round at a friend's house one afternoon making a cake, as it turns out, um, a very um, heteronormative setting. Um, and we were baking some cakes and he received a call. He worked for the local council and he received a call telling him that someone had died in one of the, um, the gay saunas in London that afternoon. And they died of a drug overdose. And... We, it got us talking and we realised that there'd been a pattern of drug overdoses in saunas over the previous six months. And it got me very interested in what was really happening there and what was, you know, what was leading to this. And then we managed to get some funding together to do our first study of chemsex to try to understand, OK, well, why are men using these drugs? What what drugs are they using? Why are they using them in these ways? What are the consequences of it? Um, and what do we need to be doing to support them to reduce the harm associated with it? So it um, that's how it bluntly how it came about. I had an interest in the field before and I'd done some work in alcohol use. But it was really, um, you know, it was kind of observing a pattern of drug related deaths that really got me interested in it and wanting to do something about it. Well, thank you so much for doing something about it. It's, you know, thank you for your work in the, well, yeah, in this field. It's, and thank you for the interview. That's all right. You're very welcome.